this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So now that you've built a successful company and you're building it to sell, the next question I think you want to ask yourself is, okay, well, who am I going to sell it to? Because the answer to that question can really help you inform the decisions you're going to make over the next couple of years. Because once you know who your buyers are, you can start to make investments, start to accentuate and sort of fine-tune areas of your business that are going to be important to buyers and even de-emphasize the things that buyers aren't really going to care about. For example, my next guest, Mike Glauser, built a frozen dessert business. Um, He was in the business of selling frozen yogurt. He he manufactured, he he distributed it. Uh, these frozen yogurts, even built his own stores. But two companies approached him, both of which were not interested in his retail stores. In fact, what they wanted was the recipe and the distribution network. And Mike had spent all kinds of money and time building up a distribution network of retail stores, his own stores that he owned, and only to find that as soon as he was acquired, the new buyer simply shut those businesses down or sold them to the managers. They had no interest in being in that business. If he'd known that going in, he might have made some different decisions as he built his business to sell, accentuating the part of the business that would be most attractive. Mike did a good job. He could have perhaps even done more had he really gone into the process knowing who the likely set buyers are for his business. Here's Mike Glauser. Mike, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So tell me about this company, Northern Lights. What what was the business you guys were in? We were one of the first in the country to create a full line of non-fat frozen dessert products. So yogurt, ice cream type products. And, uh, you know, I was a university professor and I was teaching business and really felt a little bit inadequate because I'd gone straight through school and gotten my PhD at a pretty young age. But I had a lot of experience in, you know, management, strategic planning and building organizations. And my wife had uh, experience in health and nutrition. That was her training. And so we wanted to combine our skills and do something that would be uh, fun and unique and kind of special. And my main objective was really to create a, a company to prove that I could do what I'd been teaching at the university. So we wanted to create a business that was the envy of an industry that people would look to and say, wow, uh, that company's great. How do they do that? And so that's really where the idea came from. We, we uh, spent about a year and looked at a number of business uh, ideas and opportunities, and that's what we selected. We, we uh, produced and wholesaled our product, Northern Lights, and then we sold it in our own retail stores under the brand Golden Spoon and Golden Swirl. So, in, and you were based where? Uh, based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay, so if I was strolling around town, I might have kind of wandered into a Golden Spoon and, and ordered a low-fat frozen dessert from the counter. Yeah. Yeah. We had, uh, you know, when we sold the company, we had about 
60 stores in the Western United States, and we were shipping the product across the country and even overseas, the Northern Lights uh, product. So you both manufactured the, the desserts and the frozen yogurt, and then you also distributed it through your own stores. Yeah, we, uh, we actually created all the own, our own recipes. I uh, brought in a fellow with a, a PhD in, uh, you know, uh, health and nutrition. Uh, I met him at Purdue University when I was there and he came to Salt Lake City and he and I created the product line. And then we actually uh, had a co-packer. We formed a partnership with a large uh, dairy operation. They produced the product and then we shipped the product to uh, thousands of wholesale customers as well as our own stores. Got it. And so what would an example of a wholesale customer have been? Like grocery stores? Yeah. Uh, for example, Hardee's, the hamburger chain, bought our product. Grocery stores bought it. Um, you know, Smith's grocery stores. Um, we had a lot of hotels and casinos, uh, Maverick country stores. So it was C stores, restaurants, casinos, hotels, uh, stadiums, arenas, and so on. So tell me about the distribution strategy. So you know, first of all, you're, you chose to go vertically integrated. So you're, you're not only creating the recipes, but you're also, you've got stores. In a lot of ways, the Golden Spoon store would have competed directly with a C store or a Hardee's or one of the other stores in the market. How did you reconcile the, the, the distribution channel? Why did you choose to vertically integrate and, and, and kind of compete, if you will, with some of your customers? You know, it kind of came about due to the opportunities that uh, were presented to us in the marketplace. Initially, we were going to provide, you know, a phenomenal retail experience, beautiful stores with Italian tiles uh, and lots of mirrors and, you know, brass. And uh, people were going to come and it was a place to reward yourself for being successful during the day and, you know, have a frozen dessert product. Our research showed that people continue to eat ice cream and dessert products even during difficult economic times. And so we built this you know, this beautiful retail store. And uh, then we created our product for the retail store. And after we had about a dozen stores, I started getting phone calls from people like Maverick Country Stores and like Hardee's. And they would say, hey, we absolutely love your product. Can we sell it in our business? And I continued to say, no. I said, that's the, the essence of our business is our unique product, which we had developed. It was a proprietary product. We owned all the recipes. And then one week I got two calls um, and I added up the revenue from those two accounts and it would have been a half a million dollars. And I told him no anyway and hung up. And then I thought, you know what? We can spin off a wholesale business and actually create a new brand. And so the Northern Lights brand came out of, you know, those conversations. And I called all the, uh, the interested parties back and said, hey, I've got a similar brand. It's called Northern Lights. We manufacture, we produce it. Would you be interested in that? And they all said yes. And so overnight we had, you know, between a half a million and a million dollars in sales. And instead of making say 10,000 gallons of a product, I just made 20,000 gallons and put it in a different box. And we found that um, it just, you know, all the boats kind of uh, rose in the harbor. It didn't affect our sales and our retail stores one bit. But there was a time when we owned, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of the frozen yogurt market in some of these Western states, either through the wholesale brand or the retail brand. And when you talk about rebranding under Northern Lights, I mean, you, you did you specifically intentionally decide not to use the Golden Spoon brand in a retail store? Because right now you can walk into a retail store and you can buy Haagen-Dazs at uh, you know, Kroger's. Right. And so they've chosen not right. to white label. They've chosen in that case to 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 
you know, merchandise the Haagen-Dazs brand. So in your case, it was different. You wanted to, these customers wanted their own brand. Is that right? Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know, happened being a university professor, I taught about, you know, labor intensive businesses and capital intensive businesses and sales intensive businesses. And, but I didn't really realize what that meant until I owned a very capital intensive business and a very labor intensive business. If I wanted to make more money, I had to go build a new store and that was 150 to $200,000. And I had to hire 40 or 50 employees. And we realized that was very difficult to create value because when people projected out what this business was going to earn over time, they realized they had to spend a significant amount of money to continue to raise the, the revenue. And so we had been thinking about, you know, how do we produce greater sales without having to spend so much capital to build out stores? And we'd shifted from large retail stores to small grocery store kiosks. And we started putting kiosks in stadiums and arenas and grocery stores. So, you know, I could build a little kiosk for $30,000 and it would do the same amount of revenue as a big store on the street that was cost me 150 to $200,000 to build. And so we'd made that shift from, we'd go into a market and build a couple big stores and they were like our billboards, our showpiece stores. We would want it to look like, you know, something came down and landed in the city on a corner space. And then we would fill in the market with these smaller kiosk stores. And so the strategy was working great. And when these wholesale customers started showing up, we thought, you know, that's really, the way to generate value because it doesn't cost, we can scale significantly without the need for capital. And we decided we made a strategic shift that we would basically, you know, own the wholesale market and create the best wholesale brand and that our stores would just become customers of our, of our, our core business. And so we made that pivot, that transition about five years into the company and, and grew significantly that way without needing so much capital. And uh, we had thousands and thousands of wholesale customers. That was the main business in the end at the time of the sale. And that's what the buyer wanted. They wanted the, the wholesale distribution. Interesting. So we'll get to that in a moment. But with the wholesale customers, did, did they use, I mean, was it, you know, if they want, if you walked into Hardee's and said, I'd like a frozen yogurt, please, a low fat frozen yogurt, were, were they, were they mindful that, did the customer know they were buying a Northern Lights product or did they think they were buying a Hardee's frozen yogurt? We, uh, that was another strategic decision, which we debated for some time. And we decided we wanted to create a brand and we hired an agency and created uh, the name Northern Lights and created all the collateral marketing material. And, and actually we had to buy the name. Another company owned the name Northern Lights. And so I bought uh, the rights to that name. And we were really providing the customer with all that collateral material with, you know, uh, flavor labels for their machines and materials to put on their counters and posters and banners to put in their store. So we were really seriously marketing the Northern Lights brand. Got it. Got it. And that was an intentional decision that, that you took? That was a strategic decision that we made to build, to continue to, to slowly grow our retail company because all of our stores were profitable and the return on the investment, you know, the, the investments were paid back in two to three years. So that was uh, successful, but we realized we could scale significantly building a wholesale company. And there just wasn't anyone in the market to compete with us. We, we had a really unique product development strategy where we would, we had what we called customers as partners in like uh, Phoenix and Las Vegas and Salt Lake City. And we would have regular taste panels where we would give them product that we were creating and give them competitors products. 
And until we got 70% of the vote uh, as the best product being sampled, we didn't go to production. And so what we found we had to do is we had to put, you know, real strawberries in the strawberry product and real fruit and real natural flavorings. And uh, we were very confident that uh, in any taste test, objective taste test, we would win 70, 80% of the votes. And so we just wanted to build that elite brand under the Northern Lights label. And that's uh, what we were doing. We didn't use the label in our uh, retail stores, but it just didn't it just didn't make any difference at all. Our sales uh, continued to improve uh, when we had stores down the street selling the Northern Lights brand. It didn't affect our volume in our retail stores, which was, you know, it was a it was kind of a, a risky decision, but we felt pretty confident we could do it. And it worked really well. And so how big did you get this company before you sold it? We had about 60 retail stores. Uh, and then we had some licensed stores. We licensed some stores, for example, to host Marriott, and they were selling our products. And then we had thousands of wholesale customers, both in the U.S. and even overseas. We were shipping containers of product to the Middle East, for example. So revenue profits? Uh, we were doing about 12, 12 to 13 million in sales when we sold. We were just you know, on a new growth curve, and we were exceeding a million dollars in net income. Got it. Got it. And so what prompted you to want to sell? Was there, was there some sort of triggering event that, uh, that got you interested in selling? Well, we were, my wife and I were very passionate about, you know, we're concerned about fitness and nutrition and the, uh, you know, growing percent of obesity in our country. And we just really wanted to do something uh, that made a contribution that was kind of special. And our goal was to you know, create a product that had no fat in it, but tasted as good as, you know, Ben and Jerry's or a Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And we think we were able to accomplish that. And so we, we weren't out looking for a buyer. We thought someday we might sell the company. It was for me, I, uh, like I said, I was teaching MBA courses and I was often the youngest guy in the class and the students were, you know, executives coming back to get an MBA. And I just felt like I needed to go out and, and do real business if I was going to stay in the field of education. And so I wanted to create a, an ideal company. And we had this love for fitness and nutrition. And uh, so we didn't actively, we never actively said, we're going to sell this company. What happened is, uh, as our brand reputation started growing, we had uh, buyers show up. So one year we had three different buyers show up and uh, say they wanted to buy the company. And the first one, we told them, no, we weren't ready to sell. And then the next year, two more buyers showed up uh, about within the same couple of weeks. Uh, one was this uh, Cool Brands International from, from Toronto. And the other one was Mrs. Fields Cookies. And they both made uh, offers on the company. And uh, we just felt like it was, it was going to be a good new home for the business to sell to Cool Brands International. Let's get to that in a moment. Who, but first, who's the we? You keep referring to we. Is that you and your wife? Are there other shareholders involved at this point? Yeah, my wife and I started the company and uh, continued to own the majority of interest, which is kind of a fun story in itself. I was able to maintain a controlling interest, even though we raised initially about $2 million to build the first group of stores. And then we had some... Uh, well, what happened was we, I wanted to maintain ownership. And so rather than sell interest in the company, we created a second company, which was an equipment leasing company. And I funded that company uh, with some partners. And so when I talk about we, it was the partners that helped fund the business, but they owned 
Uh, I owned a share of uh, some interest in the equipment leasing company. They were the majority shareholders. And what they would do is they would build out each store with this fund. And then our stores would have a, um, a minimum payment. We paid 7% on the cost of that store. And they would pay for everything, the equipment, the improvements, even the initial inventory. And I had a payment of 30% of net income, as we defined it in the contract, or 7% on the investment whichever was higher. And so I was able to continue to own the company and control the company, but the equipment leasing company provided all the financing. So we had a really neat group of partners uh, and a board that, uh, that we worked with to build that business. Wow. So that's another element to the story unto itself. So I'd love to dig in a little bit there. So you had, you, you raised initial round of funding um, to, to build the first set of stores. You mentioned you got a couple of million dollars. Was that from the, this leasing operation or was that a separate tranche of investment? Yeah, what happened is I had the ability to fund several stores. And so we'd found a couple of leases and we thought, let's go ahead and build a couple of stores as prototypes, prove that we could really do this. And then it would be a lot easier to go and attract financing if we wanted to continue building retail stores, which we were pretty sure we wanted to do. And one of the landlords uh, for this first lease that I signed came to me and I'd, I'd known him before. He was a, just a great guy and had a great reputation uh, as a business leader here in the area. And he came to me and said, I'm glad you're leasing space from us. I love what you're doing. Do you need investors? And I said, no, not really. And he said, well, here's what we need. We need some passive income and uh, I'm willing to provide the financing. Uh, initially, I think we started talking about, you know, tenant improvements and then uh, an addition to the lease. And, and he and I were able to hammer out this leasing equipment agreement together. And then we brought in other investors into that pool. So uh, it was almost, you know, by accident that the first one of the first landlords came to me and uh, really wanted to be involved in the financing of the growth of this company. And so that's that's how we did it. So it was pretty neat to, you know, own the business and control the business, uh, having raised almost two million dollars to build the first, say, I think it was 12 stores that we built. And then what happened was that, you know, we would open a store and it would make money right off the bat. And it was so successful that we had enough cash flow to start building with our own money and we didn't need the equipment leasing company any longer. So I started opening stores that I was funding with earnings and they came and said, you know, uh, we'd love to, you know, we helped you get started. We'd love to go for a ride with you. Would you be willing to convert all these equipment leases to equity? And uh, so we talked about, you know, we valued the business and projected out our growth. And I was able to convert all those leases on the first 12 stores to a 20% interest in the uh, corporate entity. So rather than giving up, you know, half or more of the company initially, we, we grew it to the point that it was able to fund its own growth. And then we converted those leases to equity, which eliminated all contracts, all payments, all debt. So we were 100% debt free from that point on building with our own cash. Got it. So, so by the time you actually sold the corporate entity, twenty uh, percent of it was owned by this this leasing group. Yes, and then the the rest of it, the eighty percent, who who else owned that? I sold uh, uh, some of that. Uh, two of the leasing guys. I actually sold some uh, ownership in the actual company, but I still maintained greater than 50% ownership. So it was three owners that owned the 80%, and then this equipment leasing group of investors owned the 20%. How 
difficult was it to manage such a complicated capital structure? You've got a lot of kind of uh, hands on the kitty or, you know, people sort of telling you what to do. Was it difficult to sort of manage all those people? You know, I see uh, a lot of different experiences as I consult now with startup companies and companies that are trying to grow and companies that want to sell. And and we were just really, really fortunate. Uh, we were able to actually move our corporate office into the same office where these uh, uh, investors were. And we worked very uh, closely together. We worked well together. You know, I knew my wife and I knew uh, the product and we knew management systems and, you know, HR systems and marketing systems, but they really knew real estate and they knew finance. And it was just a great partnership. We didn't duplicate our skill sets. Uh, we had different skill sets and we had great respect for each other. And because we were growing and uh, so profitable that, you know, no one was complaining or trying to control the deal. Everyone was very happy with where it was going. I, I found that if you know, if a, a business is growing and successful, everyone seems to be pretty happy. And so we, we had very little conflict or, or uh, uh, contention at all while we were growing this company. That's great. So let's get into the actual sales. So you mentioned uh, you had a, a couple of sort of uh, unsolicited offers, one from Mrs. Fields, the other from Cool Brands. Tell me how formal those offers were. When you said you, you had offers, was it you know, someone called and said, hey, you know, Mike, if you're ever interested in selling, let me know. Or was it a letter of intent with a number on it, uh, you know, formalized? Our distributor, one of our distributors in California uh, had been approached by these buyers from Toronto. Um, and they told him what they were trying to do. They were trying to roll, roll up the specialty food business. And they were buying, they'd raised, uh, I think, $30 million on the Toronto exchange. And they were coming to the U.S. to buy companies. And so our distributor said, you really got to go look at this company in Salt Lake City. So they called me, Michael Saruya called me from Toronto. And he said, here's what we're doing. We think you're a great fit. Um, we'd really love to buy your company. And I said, you know, Michael, it's, it's not for sale. Uh, we're growing it. We're loving it. We're having a great experience he said, well, every company's for sale for the right terms, the right conditions. Can I fly down to Salt Lake City and spend a few days with you and tell you what we're doing? I said, great, no problem. But, you know, I'm really not looking to sell the business at this point in time. And uh, then at about the same time, Mrs. Fields showed up and they had heard that, you know, we were willing to let uh, cool brands come in. How would they have heard that, Mike? You know, they're here in uh, uh, Utah as well. And Debbie Fields was one of our customers, and she was buying product from us to put in her actual ranch uh, here just outside of Salt Lake City. And I think one of our, uh, someone in the investment group mentioned that to someone that mentioned it to, to them. But so they showed up and said, can we take a, a pass at it as well? And uh, so both companies came in and did some due diligence, and Mrs. Fields made a, uh, an attractive offer, but they wanted me to stay uh, they were going to pay half the money in cash up front, and the second half would be paid out over two years, and there were some growth and performance requirements. And uh, the other company, Cool Brands, uh, when they were through with their due diligence, he'd made a formal offer. It was a one-page offer sheet. And I looked at it, and I knew it was too low, and I just said, you know, uh, we've got another offer. We're not going to even – I wouldn't consider this. And he said, well, write the number down you would consider. And so I put a pretty big number down. I raised it by – 30% made it more equal to the other offer. And he said, let me get back to you. And he came back to me later and just said, okay, we'll accept your offer on two conditions. One is that 
you know, we're going to move your headquarters to where we have offices in Dallas and uh, we really don't need this office here and we've got an executive team. And I said, great, I don't really want to run something I don't own any longer. So that's not a problem. And then he said, the second issue is, is really critical. He said, you have to take cash for the company. And uh, I was pretty surprised actually, because I thought they were going to offer stock in their business. And uh, so we talked about it as a board and decided that was our better offer. And uh, we accepted, uh, you know, their one page term sheet. And then they came in and continued to do some due diligence and verified that everything we had represented was accurate. And uh, we closed the sale. I think it was probably about six weeks later. So the the final sale price was that Mrs. The- that the Mrs. Fields organization, when I say Mrs. Fields, they don't mean Debbie. I, I just mean Mrs. Fields, the company. <laughs> Mrs. Fields um, was offering what the, the headline number ended up being about the same, uh, as I understand it. But Mrs. Fields was offering it over, you know, 50% up front and 50% on a, on a kind of an earnout with performance incentives. Is that right? Yeah, it was a little bit, it was actually a little bit higher, but it was uh, just, you know, wasn't as attractive to us. We were, We'd grown so rapidly, you know, when, you, when you're doing a million, it's easy to grow to 2 million to 3 million, but you start hitting 8, 10 million, it's harder to kind of double mm-hmm. or increase those sales. And we were kind of starting to flatten out a little bit. And, uh, you know, we're, speci- we're especially food. And so there's always concern, how long is this going to last? And, and so I, we thought the cash offer um, with a company that was already in this space was a better buyer. Give us a sense of the multiple of EBITDA, if you would, Mike. Uh, it was more than five times uh, what we got for the company. So we were pretty happy with that. Got it. Got it. And so very little strings attached. I mean, the all cash offer, uh, it sounds like too good to be true. Was it, what, what, were there any reservations about taking all cash? I mean, did you, were there parts of the, the investment group that wanted to, for example, get stock in Cool Brands' compensation? No, I think everyone was very pleased. We didn't. We didn't know these guys very well. And they were, you know, they were pretty young guys, the Saruya brothers. They were in their late 20s, early 30s. And uh, we liked what they were doing, but we didn't know a lot about them. And I think our group was ready to move on. Uh, we had rebranded once uh, and updated all the stores and made some investments to grow further. And uh, we just thought the timing was was right for what we were doing. We weren't sure, you know, especially foods kind of cycle and we'd had a great ride. We were successful because we did not franchise. So we didn't have all the, the built-in costs and the upcharges and we could handle, you know, decreases in revenue and still be profitable uh, where a lot of our competitors were starting to go out of business. And we just thought this was a good time maybe to have a bigger parent that had more resources and, you know, a bigger team and other brands, they could combine brands. So, it just seemed like a really great thing. We all felt really good about it. And by this time I'd been in it, you know, I'd left the university. I was teaching at the university of North Carolina and I'd left the university. And, um, 10 years later, I felt like, you know, I had the academic credentials and now I had the real business experience that I could go back and teach entrepreneurship and business building, uh, and be very, very credible in the field. And so that's what I did. I've built several companies since then, just smaller, uh, fun kind of uh, lifestyle businesses. And I've helped many, many people, uh, probably hundreds of people with their own startups. So I've been writing and teaching and speaking and, uh, you know, uh, you know, 
putting books into the market and uh, doing all I can to help other people have the same great experience I had. That's my passion now is to help other people have the same experience that I had. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that experience because it does it does sound fascinating. So with Cool Brands, um, their original offer was low ball. You said, no way, we've got this other offer. He said, write down your number. You, As I understand it, you, you upped your number about 30%. Right. Uh, it, and, and then said, hey, here's the number to which he kind of responded with two conditions. Was there, have I got the kind of, the bit like the, the, the timeline about right? Yeah. And the neat thing about it was that, you know, we really did not want to sell the company. So we, you know, we were in a strong position. We weren't out, you know, begging. The worst time to sell a company is when it's really coming apart and unraveling. You want to sell it when it's doing great. And if you want to sell a business, you know, I really preach that, you know, increasing net income approach, you got to continually build your net income and you'll get the highest multiple possible. If they can project out earnings based on a past performance that is improving yearly, you're going to get a lot better offer and be in a position of strength. And so we were in that position of strength because we had great numbers, we had no debt and we weren't out shopping the business. So it was, it was a matter of you know, we don't want to do this, but if you'll do this, we think this is fair. And it was um, a pretty easy transaction. Was there any any part of you that thought maybe you left some money on the table given how quickly he accepted the, the offer that was 30% higher? Well, I knew that, you know, uh, four or five times earnings uh, was pretty attractive. Uh, six, five, six, seven was really exceptional unless you find a public company to buy you you're not going to see those big multiples. And uh, we, I just thought it was fair. I felt like it was, you know, there's some risk still involved. Uh, and uh, they were taking on, you know, uh, our project and they seemed like good, good parents and owners for the project and the price seemed fair. And uh, we just all agreed that, that it was a good deal. They felt good about it. And we felt good about it. And what was it that they were, what was the strategic asset that they were so keen to get their hands on. It sounds like the wholesale distribution network was what they were after. Yeah, they were. Uh, they didn't want to own retail stores. In fact, all their stores in Canada had been were franchised units. I think they owned a few of their own stores, but they mostly owned uh, had franchise partners. And so they didn't really want the retail store, but they wanted the product and they wanted the distribution. They wanted the production is what they wanted. They wanted this big network of wholesale customers and they wanted to take the re retail stores and have that be a source of revenue. And so they quickly put them up for sale. They sold some of them to the managers and they put some of the others up for sale. Any of the, where the leases were due, they even just closed some of them down and really tried to build the distribution of the new product line. Do, do you get any sense of how much money they would have garnered from selling all the Golden Spoon uh, you know, stores? Like, would they have come close to matching their their five times EBITDA? Yeah, I think they I think they could have done that. Um, like I said, I left uh, right after that and jumped into another venture, and so I didn't really stay in touch or track what was going on. I, uh, but I know they sold they sold a lot of the stores. Got it, got it. So they were after first of all the product, which you had you know proprietary recipes that that you had developed. Um, as well as the the wholesale distribution network and and the customers, because they, as I understand, they could they could see their way clear to selling other products that they had control over their other brands and so forth into that distribution, the likes of Hardee's and others. Is that is that was that yeah. the kind of strategic value they saw? 
Yeah, I think that uh, they saw a lot of advantages, but ultimately they had money they had to spend and they saw that we had a lot of cash and great cash flow. And they saw, you know, that that could increase and that this would be an attractive uh, investment. So it was a strategic investment, but I think more than anything else, they were looking at, for a way to enhance the financial uh, value and the opportunities for their company. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As you look back now on on the sale, what would you do differently if you had it to do over again? You know, I think, uh, you know, it went about as well as you could expect and it was uh, unexpected, but I think I probably would have gotten all the partners on board a little bit better and said, Hey, do we want to sell this? When do we want to sell it? What do we want to sell it for? What's a fair offer? Who would be a good buyer? We could have actually, we may have done better if we had done more planning uh, for the exit and gotten all on the same page prior to some uh, potential buyers showing up. But, uh, you know, it was really a pretty unusual ex- experience uh, that we were all pretty happy with. How were, was there, was there any uh, dissension among the ranks? Were there, was there any sort of dissension among the, the investor group, uh, minority shareholders that said, you know, it's not the right time to sell? Was there any, any dissension at all? The investors were all absolutely thrilled with the uh, transaction. Uh, they did well, they couldn't have been happier. Uh, some members of my executive team, we we had some uh, break points that if we were ever to, when we hit certain revenue, uh, you know, levels and net income levels, that there was a very rich, you know, profit sharing uh, arrangement in place. And there was even a chance for them to pick up some ownership in a sale if we hit certain numbers. And we hadn't gotten to those numbers yet. So there are a few members of the executive team that didn't want to sell and weren't too happy about it. But the owners, the people that had put the money into it were all pretty happy about it. How did you navigate those conversations with the management team and and your employees? You know, they kept all the, most of the employees were in the stores. And so they kept all the employees. The only people that uh, they didn't keep were a few members of the management team. And I was one of those. And I I told them I didn't want to stay and they were happy with that. And uh, a couple other executives were fine. The few that wanted to stay, uh, they actually kept some of them. They kept some of them uh, to help with the sale of Northern Lights and, and uh, you know, one of the, uh, some of the managers, the regional managers they kept. But uh, the ones that were not too thrilled, we just sat down and, you know, had some long, hard conversations that, uh, you know, I'd put up all the risk. I'd found the money, I'd built the business and I'm sorry, it didn't grow uh, to the extent that they wanted to, so they could benefit a little bit more financially, but, um, you know, they'd been paid extremely well. They had attractive bonuses. They were probably paid above the market. One of the things I did is the executive team that I had, we all, you know, paid ourselves the same amount. And uh, I paid myself the same as everybody else. And then we had uh, bonuses based on our roles. So the, the VP of sales had a bonus based on sales. And, you know, the VP of construction had a bonus based on getting stores open on time, built uh, and within budget. And, uh, you know, product development VP had, you know, uh, performance bonuses based on, you know, product creation. And so we all we were all making a lot more than our base salary, but we all had the same amount of base salary. And so they had done really, really well. Some, you know, had been with me five, six years, one, eight years. And, uh, you know, they did better than they probably could have done working anywhere else. And in the end, everyone felt fine about it. They got their way, their heads around it. But there is that sense uh, sometimes that that managers in particular new managers can confuse 
the difference between being a manager and being an owner of a company? Was it like, did you have to sort of explain that, hey, sounds like you did have to explain the differences between being a manager and being an owner and, and the various implications of that? Yeah, and I'm very, uh, very team oriented. And I wanted, I think there's nothing more powerful than an entrepreneurial team where you have five or six people really working to build a company that have some upside. And so, you know, you ask, what would you have done differently? I probably erred on the side of having everybody feel like it was their company and they had, you know, some options and the opportunity to do really well financially uh, over time. We didn't hold the business long enough for them to do as well as they might have done. But to make it really clear that, uh, you know, as an owner, you create the concept, you take all the risk, you go find the money. And uh, that's a little bit different than, you know, being hired. If you come on uh, and you work for a lower salary for equity, then, you know, there's one set of expectations. But if you're paid at the market level or even higher than the market, uh, it's not it's not correct to think that you made the company what it was. And so you should get just as much as the owners when the company is sold. And so I could have managed those expectations better. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Difficult conversations for sure. And I mean, Salt Lake's a you know, relatively small town. I mean, do you, do you run into these people around town from time to time? Yeah. Oh yeah. We're still all great friends and we have a lot of stories to tell and we laugh about the, the old times and uh, there's no problems there now. So you're able to kind of patch things up. Well, that's, that's good. Mike, where, tell us where people can reach you. What's the best way to reach you uh, through the various projects you're involved in now? Uh, my uh, website is just mikeglauser.com. And then we have a couple, our company, mynewenterprise.com is another site, uh, which is our consulting company, our training and development company. And then our newest project, uh, it's the mainstreetentrepreneur.com. This is the project we've been working on for the last three or four years where we've been traveling all across America and interviewing uh, people that are creating really unique, interesting, innovative companies. And we're telling their stories and kind of summarizing what we learned so that we can teach other people how to build their successful companies as well. So those are the three sites. And we'll put those in the show notes. So you've got uh, links to those in the show notes for sure at builttocell.com. Mike, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.